Tonight's reading is from Luke 8, 26 through 39. Jesus heals a man with a demon. Then they sailed to the country of Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time, he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. They would break the bonds and be driven by the demons into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him to let him enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs. And the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and they told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and they found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those had seen it, told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming through the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. This is the word of the Lord. So what do you do with a story like that? Um, I've thought a lot about that the past 30 years. Um, I guess we don't need this one anymore. Thank you. I'd like to tell you a little little story that will kind of introduce you to my own journey with a passage like this. It's the fall of 1985. Um, I am in seminary at Talbot School of Theology, part of Biola in Southern California. And we would pretty much solve the problems of the global church over coffee in the break room. And... This fall, the problem that we were solving had to do with a very controversial class taught at Fuller Seminary, which is about an hour up the road in Pasadena, by a man named John Wimber. It was called MC 510, Signs and Wonders in Church Growth. And uh, John Wimber began as a jazz pianist, became a Christian, then became a pastor, uh, began to experience a lot of uh, healing. 
And he began to, to come to this belief that this was part of proclaiming the gospel today. And there's a picture of the very early days of the, he started ultimately the Vineyard Church Movement, if you've ever heard of that. Uh, there he is on the keyboard there. Uh, my brother-in-law was part of that original church, I think, in uh, Anaheim, and you know, we've had some fun stories about that. Well, so he starts teaching this class, and uh, he's teaching missionaries from all over the world. He brings in a guy named Don, um, Peter Wagner. Peter Wagner, who'd been a missionary, and they come in. They spend an hour teaching on, uh, essentially, uh, pr- how to pray for healing, how to ca- all, all this stuff that we just read about. And then the next hour, they, he says, let's do the stuff. Let's practice. And you, this, there's still YouTube clips with, with this on it. And so they would do the stuff. Well, we're an hour away, and we would hear about them doing the stuff. And my seminary was enraged <laughs> because God didn't do that kind of thing today, and it must be Satan. And so there were these huge arguments uh, about what was going on up there in Fuller, and why did they tolerate this? And I remember in my systematic theology class, a, uh, a, a woman who was very old, who'd come back from the mission field. She must have been at least 40. Uh, I remember, remember thinking she was just so old. What's she doing here? And, and she, she said, sir, I've just spent 12 years in the mission field, and I just saw all this, and I'll never forget he turned purple in the face and just ruthlessly uh, destroyed her at every level, telling her that none of this could be true, and if it was, it was uh, from Satan. Now, that was a very confusing time, and I, my brother-in-law actually was helping lead worship there uh, in the Anaheim Vineyard, and uh, we would argue and argue and argue about what was going on. Um, and I, I remember at, at, at one level very much embracing what I would call the Reformed approach towards healing and suffering at that time. And, and by that, I mean... All these wonderful truths I've tried to teach here many years, that God is glorified in suffering, God uses suffering to, uh, to make us more like him, that uh, many times when God heals, it's over a long, long period of time, that uh, the demanding miracles and spiritual experiences uh, is not always the best thing. It can become a counterfeit for the true gospel and, and all of that. And there's a lot of truth in, in all of that. I've tried to teach that to you. I still believe all of that. But at the same time, this crazy guy was doing this stuff up the road, and it really bothered me because my brother-in-law, who was not a nut, but a really good guy, who's actually kind of got a boring temperament and doesn't go running around seeking for things, was uh, seeing all this stuff happen. Well, about that time, uh, to make matters worse, one, the seminary I am is uh, imploding over a debate over gender, and at the same time, a pastor or a professor named Neil Anderson says, I'm going to start teaching a class called Spiritual Warfare, and he brings in a lecturer from Vineyards Church to my seminary, which is imploding over the gender issue. So you can imagine uh, what the coffee talks were like that, that year. Well, uh, Neil is a storyteller, and he would tell these hair-raising stories about casting out demonic spirits. And uh, word got out that if you took his class, she would not sleep with the light on for the whole semester. And... Being brave and full of faith, I decided not to take the class. But um, by the senior year, I needed an elective, and that was the only one that fit in my schedule. So this, your, your pastor, your leader, your man of faith, sat in the back row and said, I don't believe any of this stuff. So we, we go through it, and I do sleep. That was scary for a while. Uh, 
But Neil lays out just some beautiful theology from basically from Ephesians about who you are in Christ. That, basically, that was what he taught was, look, you are in Christ, and therefore you have authority over anything else. So I'm thinking, well, that's not too weird. Well, a lady comes into my church. And I was on pastor, of a, I was on the staff of a small church at the time. And she gives me a story about she's come out of the occult and she, she's got demons tormenting her at night and, and all this stuff that I didn't want to hear and that when she wakes up, her, her Bible is ripped in two every night and scattered in pages all over the room. And, and, and I'm thinking, where is Dr. Anderson? So I call <laughs> Dr. Anderson and uh, I set up an appointment to meet with this lady. And he walks through a process that he was developing that he, he, he called uh, Steps to Freedom in Christ. And this woman who came in almost comatose, uh, by the end of it, by the end of, of, of affirming basic truths about who she was in Christ and confessing different sins, came out in great peace. And uh, Dr. Anderson eventually left the seminary to start a ministry, and she went to be a secretary. <laughs> so I saw that with my own eyes, okay? So I'm, I'm leaving very confused about all of, all of this and wondering where it fits. And I would say that for the last 30 years, I've been trying to figure that out. Because I've come to the conclusion that both are true. Uh, I, I really believe the Reformed approach to suffering is, is true. I really think it's true. God is glorified through suffering. God doesn't always heal. God uses suffering to shape our character. When he does heal, it's normally through the common means of grace that take uh, you know, years and years, Bible study, prayer, confession of sin, things like that. I believe all that, and I've preached all of that to you. But I've also come to believe that what we see in the Bible in terms of the miraculous is for today as well. And that it's a both and, not an either or. Both and, not an either or, you know, Martin Luther said the church is always like a drunk on a horse, falling off one side, falling off the other. And, and we don't want to do that. It's a both and. Let's, let's stay on the horse. So when, when I come to a passage like this, my default is to teach it as a metaphor. And I don't think that's all wrong, but my default is to say, okay, the demon-possessed man is a symbol of what can happen to a human soul through the evil that is in the world. The healing of Jesus is a symbol of the power of transformation that comes over time through the means of common grace and that this is a, a picture of the gospel. I think that is an appropriate way to teach this passage. And until 4 o'clock yesterday, that was the sermon you were going to get. Um, I'm more comfortable with it that way. Uh, but then I, I was praying about it, I was reading it, and I had this sense, I, I felt like the Lord said, but you know the early church didn't read it that way, don't you? <laughs> I, I learned one thing, I learned a lot of things, I hope, in seminary, but one of them more than anything else was the authority of Scripture. And so if, if this was what the scripture originally meant, I shouldn't be afraid of opening up to you and seeing where it, where it goes, okay? So I know this will sound kind of obvious. I think Jesus Christ is our model. 
<laughs> You're not throwing things yet, are you? <laughs> okay, radical idea, I know, okay. I think Jesus is our model, or we're not too heretical yet, okay? Uh, and that the Christian life is about being conformed to his image, about you know, growing in, in the knowledge and life of him and, and all of that, all of that, okay? So I think what Jesus is doing here is a model of, of how we are to walk out the gospel too. Now, I'm making some assumptions here, and my, my assumption is essentially that Jesus wants us to be like him. That's my theology of all of this right there. And I want to give you a couple scriptures, um, because each gospel, uh, Matthew 10, 5 through 8, if, if you have a Bible or a phone and you're not checking the scores, um, Matthew 10, 5 through 8, these 12 Jesus sent out, instructed them, go nowhere among the Gentiles, enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, Proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. So Jesus doesn't just do this. He says, okay, I'm doing this. Watch me. You go do it. When I uh, was learning how to swim in college, they would show us these videos of these great swimmers. Um, And it was utterly worthless because I could never do anything that they were doing because I was a lousy swimmer. So no matter how many times you show me Mark Switz through the butterfly, I can never do the butterfly because I'm not very good at swimming. That's not what Jesus does in the Gospels. He commissions the disciples, everybody in this room, to do what he does, and he gives us the Holy Spirit so that we can do it. Let me read you another. Every Gospel says the same thing in its own way. Mark 16 Jesus is commissioning the disciples to go into all the world. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. Now, I know that's a controversial passage for two reasons. One is, if you look at the bottom of your text, in very tiny font that I no longer can read, it says, but I know it's there because I used to read it, it says that this ending is not in all early manuscripts. And this would be a whole other sermon, but briefly what that means is, you know there's not a copy of the original Greek Bible in England somewhere in a library, right? There are copies of hundreds and thousands of manuscripts which occasionally disagree to about a half of 1% of their content, none of which affects the, the doctrine in it. And so the translators figure out what the best manuscript is and and put it into the scriptures. So they've got a lot of manuscripts that don't have this ending, a lot of manuscripts that do. So it's possible it wasn't in the earliest manuscripts. But what that means is that very early on, by the end of the first century, the church was so convinced that this was part of the gospel message that they, they put it in. So it tells us something about what they believed. Okay, now I know what you're all thinking. We all live in East Tennessee. We've all driven through Cock County. What about the snakes? What about the snakes? I'm ready to get out of here. Okay. Um, Okay. If you're a missionary in a desert region and you're going out with sandals on and no 
cover for your feet. What are you worried about? Stepping on a snake or stepping on a scorpion. And so he's saying, when you go preach the gospel, I'll protect you. It would be like if you felt called to move into a housing project with great violence, he would be saying, you know, if that's what you're called to do, I'll go with you. Okay, so that's what, that's the snake thing. Okay, so let's go to Luke 9. Can't wait to read my email in the morning. Okay, Luke 9, 1 to 2. And he called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Okay, and then one more, John... 14, 12, Jesus again, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. So, this is kind of my basic assumption, is that Jesus expects us to follow his example, that that's his goal. Um, That's what he wants for us. Well, let's go back now and look at this passage, and and let's look at it as a model of something that we might do. Well, if you were here last week, one of the things that you'll remember is that we pointed out that right before this, there was this enormous storm that threatened to kill all the disciples. That's the last part, verses 22 to 28. And the next day, Jesus has them get into the boat and sail across from the populated side to the non-populated side, where they meet this man with the demon. And I was thinking about that today, and I thought, you know, that is kind of where this whole journey starts, is with, even when you're scared, and even when you think the boat might tip over, Jesus says, all right, we're going to go this way now, and you get back in the boat. Wherever it's going to go, they don't know. They know that the other side of the lake is kind of wild, kind of scary. They don't know anybody over there. Well, you get in the boat. I don't know where it's going either. But I think this whole healing journey just begins with, God, you're in charge of my life and this church. And I'm willing to go wherever you want me to go. I have no idea where that leads. It's not always going to lead to a miraculous casting out of a naked demon man. Who knows where it's going to lead? But there's a, there's a posture of, all right, I'm getting in that crazy boat, and let's go. So are you ready to get into the boat? Okay. Um, then... They get on the shore of this beach, and, and they obviously can tell that this man is troubled. He'd worn no clothes, not lived in a house. He was among the tombs. He'd kept guard and bound with chains and shackles, and he was driven by the demon into the, into the desert. Now, everybody that thinks about this at this point has a very important question. It's, it's one of the questions I've thought about all my life. What's the difference between demonic presence and mental illness? Because they didn't have psychology then. They didn't have all the categories of all of this. And the last thing that we want to do is say that, say that just because your serotonin levels are low, you're possessed or oppressed by a demon. We don't want to say that. That would be irresponsible, right? 
We've learned a lot of things about the body, about health, about the causes of different things. There are factors that happen in our homes that cause trauma. There are factors that happen in our bodies that cause trauma. How do you know any of this? Well, all I'm going to do tonight is just, just tell you what I'm learning uh, and what I've been thinking about for the last 30 years. The human personality is integrated. It is not divided into neat categories. So you don't have like this box inside of you that says, okay, these are emotional wounds, and these are wounds from your family, and these are wounds from your biochemistry, and these are wounds from, uh, you know, some demon. And if it's box number four, do this. People aren't like that, right? We're all mixed up together. Everything's in there together. And here's, here's how I've seen it over the years. Is that normally, and there are abnormal situations, and we're not going to talk to them tonight, but normally, wicked spirits are like flies attracted to pus. And when you are wounded through a trauma uh, a bad belief system, a tragedy, whatever happens. When, when something breaks in you and there's something left that's not healed, it gets pussy and infected, and that's where wicked spirits like to hang out. And what they do is they energize and empower and darken that part of life. Verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Don't give an opportunity to the devil. The Greek word means a place or a foothold. I don't think a Christian can be possessed by Satan. Why? Because you're possessed by Jesus Christ. You do have flesh. Your flesh, when it's given over to sin, can become a place where a demonic spirit can have squatter's rights, as it, as it were. And so in my limited experience, when this kind of ministry dealing with wicked spirits comes up, it's a part of a broader ministry of healing. And as we work through different areas of growth, right, we're all like onions. Uh, We all have, that's not the best illustration. I can't think of nothing. But we all have layers and you work through layers, and you're making progress, and then all of a sudden you hit something, and you're entirely stuck, and you disassociate, and all sorts of bizarreness goes on in your head, it could be that you've bumped into a wicked spirit. So I know that there are exceptions, but most of the time that's what I've seen. Last week somebody came up, uh, something had gone on in them during the service, they asked to come in and meet, they had a dream, we interpreted the dream, the dream was about something violent and, and ter- terrible in a house that the person was trying to cope with. And as we prayed about it, we realized that it was something in their life that they needed to get out. That's how this passage played out in my life this week. And later on that day, you know, we were able to have that spirit go. Now, the next thing that we see here is that Jesus has entire authority over this wicked spirit. Verse 28, the demon recognizes his authority. He pleads with him. He falls to the ground. Uh, He says, don't send me here. Everybody, it's very clear 
that Jesus has absolute and entire authority over this wicked spirit. That is so important for us to understand if we're going to walk in this in any way. The spiritual life is not like a tennis match where God's on one side, Satan's on the other, and boy, I hope he doesn't hit it into the net. That is not the biblical worldview. God created Satan. Satan ultimately will bow the knee to God. Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross for our sins, earned the victory over Satan and therefore has authority over him. Uh, Colossians 2, 14 to 15. Um, spells that out pretty clearly. And you who were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities of their spiritual powers, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. What did Jesus do at the cross? He performed a triumph. In Roman cultures, when Rome would go out and beat an enemy, they would drag the army and the defeated general through the streets and they would, before they cut his head off, and they would call that a triumph. And that's what Paul's referring to here, is that Jesus led a triumph through the streets of this spiritual heaven. He has defeated Satan at the cross. Now, if we go back to Ephesians chapter 1 real quickly, uh, we see something else, or actually Ephesians 2, 4 to 6, that's just as important about our authority in Christ. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You put Ephesians 2 with Colossians 2 and you get a very important, very powerful truth. And the truth is this. Jesus Christ, when he rose from the dead, defeated Satan at the cross. He is now at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places, in the position of authority in the heavenly places. You, when you put your faith in him, die and are raised with him in Christ. Therefore, you share his authority in Christ over Satan. You've got to remember that. My, my little girls were, were younger. They were having a lot of nightmares. And uh, goofy stuff was going on in the house. And so we took them to Panera, and we have what we call now the badge talk. And uh, took out, I think one of them even still had, took out a napkin, drew a badge. And uh, we talked about, and I, I took this illustration from somewhere else. We, we talked about a police officer, right? If, if a, let's say you're a 22-year-old, 110-pound uh, police officer. You step into a busy street, and you have this badge on. You can stop. The biggest truck in there. Why? Because you're so strong. No. You can stop the truck because you have the authority of the state that you're standing in. That's why you can stop the truck. And so we drew the little shield, the little badge on there. And even to this day in our text chain, which goes on nonstop, 24-7, about ridiculous things like The Bachelor and other things, don't think I'm so spiritual, uh, <laughs> we still have occasion to bring up the shield. Okay. So what we're saying here is you have a badge. There is absolutely nothing in you 
that has the right to do anything to a demonic spirit. Nothing. You remember that, that passage in Acts, one of my favorite ones, where these guys get cocky and they try to throw out a demonic spirit, the spirit essentially kicks their rear end, and, and they go back and they say, what happened? And, and they say, we didn't even know who you were. Uh, you're, you're nothing to us because they would not come in the power of Christ. The only authority over the demonic comes from Jesus Christ. Now, what does Jesus do? Well, one of the things you learn as you look at the healing stories is he never does it the same way. So there's not a formula, right? There's not like, well, it's always say this and then say this and turn around three times and click your heels. That's not, that's magic. That's not the gospel. This is just the spirit-filled life. But here is how Jesus does it in this particular passage. Um, The first thing that he does, and, and by the way, he does this alone but he represents the Trinity. Never do this alone. Always do this with other brothers and sisters. Um, Here's how it's worked for me. If somebody comes in and they they say, you know, I I feel like I'm wrestling with with a demonic affliction. I feel like I'm oppressed by a demonic spirit. I will try to spend time with them, a lot of time with them if possible. I will try to listen to to what their issue is. I'll try to understand if maybe it's more of another kind of a situation, if maybe they need counseling. I will try to understand, are they practicing the normal means of grace? Are they in the Word? Are they in fellowship? We'll go through all of that. And if we go through that, and it still appears that there is a wicked spirit that is bothering them, we'll do some teaching about their identity and authority in Christ, what we just did. And then there'll be an opportunity for the confession of sin Because almost always, the wicked spirit is attracted to the pus of an affected wound that comes from unconfessed sin. Brief aside, here's where the devil is so evil, just just horrible. Sometimes, you are an innocent victim of abuse, even as a little person, that is not your fault at all. And then because you're human, like me, you make a choice to respond in a way that's not trusting your father, and that's called sin. Oh, that's not fair, is it? That's horrible. Satan is not fair. But that is a place where infection can get in. It's so sad. You know, when a little girl is abused, a little boy is abused, and he or she says, I will never let anyone again in again. I will put walls around my heart. I will not trust anybody again. Totally understandable, right? Still sin. And it gives the devil a place. So there has to be an opportunity for some confession. And then what I, I will usually do one of two things. And again, they're not saying this is the only way. Sometimes I will use a written prayer that will walk them through their identity in Christ, give them an opportunity to confess sin, and then proclaim their freedom in Christ. Most of the time, any oppression from the wicked spirit is gone after going through that prayer, and and nothing else has to to happen. I saw it happen in my office Monday night, last Monday night at 5. David Leach prayed the prayer with somebody. Most of the time, truth, gospel truth, is enough to deal with it most of the time. 
I don't know why, sometimes more is needed. And in, in my experience, uh, when that happens, the next sort of level of intensity, and I would start with just scripture, most of the time that's enough. And again, don't do this alone. And again, if you, you run into it for the first time, get somebody who's got a little more experience to go with you. The next thing that I would do is I would say, after going through all this teaching, and I, in the name of Jesus Christ, come out and go to the place where Christ would send you. Now, it's very important that you shout. I'm joking. <laughs> there is no need to raise your voice and make a scene. This is not TV. Uh, it's not your authority, right? You don't have to say anything. You just say that. Most of the time, that is enough to deal with the Spirit. Now, there's a third level when you bump into something and it, it, it doesn't go away. And at that third level, you can do what Jesus did and ask the Spirit its name. And when a spirit is forced by the authority of Christ, not you, authority of Christ, not you, authority of Christ, not you, when the spirit is forced to reveal its name, it is giving up power and honoring Christ's authority. And then what I will ask is, by what right do you have to be in this person's life? And I will say, in the name of Christ, I bind you from interfering with this person's body or mind in any way, and you may not lie, and you must speak directly to Christ. And most of the time, they will say, I'm attached to fear, lust, pride, something like that. And then the person can confess that stronghold, and then the spirit goes. There are extreme cases where there are higher level things going on, uh, we're not dealing with those tonight, and you shouldn't deal with those by yourself. The last thing uh, that I, I try to do is pray a cleansing prayer. And uh, this is one that is an is a ancient one, and it's a really good one. If we can put it up there, um, I don't know. Maybe that won't work so well. But um, Okay, yeah. This is called St. Patrick's Breastplate. And it's a wonderful prayer to pray at the end of a session like this. Because it's like being in surgery. And when you like pull out the, the bad body part, the surgeon just doesn't go, cool, I'm on vacation. No, there's a lot to kind of closing up and making sure that an infection doesn't sit in. This is how you close the surgery. And you know, let's pray this together today. I arise today through a mighty strength the invocation of the Trinity, through belief in the threeness, through confession of the oneness, the creator of creation. I rise today through the strength of Christ's birth with his baptism, through the strengths of his crucifixion with his burial, through the strengths of his resurrection with his ascension, through the strengths of his descent for the judgment of doom. I arise today through the strength of the love of cherubim, in the obedience of angels, in the service of archangels, in the hope of resurrection to meet with reward, in the prayers of patriarchs, in the predictions of prophets, in the preaching of apostles, 
in the faith of confessors, in the innocence of holy virgins, in the deeds of righteous men. I arise today through the strength of heaven, the light of the sun, the radiance of the moon, the splendor of fire, the speed of lightning, the swiftness of wind, the depths of the sea, the stability of the earth, the firmness of rock. I arise today through God's strength to pilot me, God's might to uphold me, God's wisdom to guide me, God's eye to look before me, God's ear to hear me, God's word to speak for me, God's hand to guard me, God's shield to protect me, God's host to save me. From snares of devils, from temptations of vices, from everyone who shall wish me ill, afar and near, I summon today all these powers between me and those evils against every cruel and merciless power that may oppose my body and soul, against incantations of false prophets, against black laws of pagandom, against false laws of heretics, against crafts of idolatry, against spells of witches and smiths and wizards, against every knowledge that corrupts man's body and soul, Christ to shield me today against poison, against burning, against droning, against wounding, so that there may come to me an abundance of reward. Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, Christ when I arise. Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me. Amen. Amen. Now you know the end of the story. A lot of people are terrified to tell him to go away. He goes into his town, preaches the gospel, and some respond. And that, I think, is how people respond. Just because there are miracles doesn't believe that people will come to faith in Christ. Sometimes people will go, it's crazy, it's weird, I want out of here. Other times people will respond. But I want to end with this. It's something Dr. Anderson told us in that class long, long ago. Um, he said, Demons are like germs. A healthy person doesn't go out into the world every day looking out for germs, looking everywhere for germs, worried that this germ's going to get him, that germ's going to get him. A healthy person eats healthy, gets good sleep, takes care of themselves, and then you don't have to worry about germs. And when you get sick, you go to a doctor. In the spiritual realm, it's just the same. Don't go out of here looking for demons. If you are healthy, if you are walking with God, if you are practicing the common means of grace, if you are eating your vegetables, you're going to be okay most of the time. Every once in a while, you'll get stuck. I've gotten stuck very recently. Then go to the doctor. Go to somebody, somebody you trust, who kind of understands a little bit of this, and get unstuck and keep going. 
okay? Let's pray.